Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Dave Baxter and joining me today is Craig Baker, Global Chief Investment Officer at Willis Towers Watson, who also chairs the Investment Committee for Alliance Trust. Uh, For those who don't know it, Alliance Trust is one of the biggest global equity investment trusts out there for UK investors and takes quite an interesting multi-manager approach uh, where it effectively delegates its investments to a selection of professional stock pickers uh, running their own concentrated portfolio. And it aims to outperform the MSCI All Country World Index by 2% a year after costs over a rolling three-year period. So, Craig, um, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? I'm very good, thanks. Pleasure to be here. Good to hear. So, Alliance Trust has uh, been an interesting one to watch in the last year or two. Um, I suppose like some of the other kind of big global equity names. Uh, if you look back a few years, it had a bit of a kind of tough time trying to keep up with um, the kind of global index, uh, trying to keep up with that big rush of the big US stocks and so on. Um, but it has been holding up a bit better uh, both last year and kind of this year as well, um, which perhaps might seem surprising given market conditions. Um, maybe to kick off, what has been kind of driving the performance of the trust versus the index in recent times? Yeah, so relative to the index, as you say, we we performed well in both uh, 2022 and so far in 2023, which have been very different environments. And I think what that shows is that it's really stock selection that's driving everything. So we're not running um, big macro positions. So we don't have big country bets. We don't have big industry bets. It really is driven from the bottom up through stock selection. And, and we actually design it that way. We, we pick managers that think about the world very differently so that when you combine them, they're not taking an overall style bet. Uh, they really are having stock selection come through. And that's exactly what's been happening this time. As you say, there was a period where um, it was very concentrated in a small number of uh, stocks back in uh, 2018, 19, 20. uh, And that was a tough time for active management. If you weren't overweight, those uh, two or three stocks in Mm. particular, it was Apple and Tesla that were were driving those markets. We had nothing in both of those stocks. uh, And that was tough. uh, Although even in that period, we managed to uh, just about keep up with um, the strong performance from the index itself. Um, What you've seen in 2023 is that, yes, there are seven stocks that have driven the market. They're being referred to as the Magnificent Seven, um, very uh, large US uh, growth stocks, technology stocks in particular. Um, We've actually been slightly underweight that seven uh, as a group over the whole period. We're pretty neutral at the moment overall, Um, but we've still had that very significant underway, Apple and Tesla, for example. But now it hasn't just been those stocks um, that have been driving it. We've actually had very strong performance from being overweight, Alphabet, Microsoft, Amazon, for example. And so we haven't really had that as a big headwind. It hasn't been a positive for us in relative terms, but it hasn't been a big negative because we haven't been significantly underweight the whole seven. Um, And so it's really been good stock selection from the rest of the portfolio uh, that's come through in both 2022 and 2023. Uh, And I think that's because you've started to see fundamentals really 
um, have more of an impact on stock prices uh, outside mm. of those um, those uh, small number of stocks we've just talked about. And that probably wasn't the case if you go back uh, a few years ago where um, perhaps there was more retail flows that were driving uh, performance and fundamentals weren't really coming through. There were a number of stocks that um, the companies were beating earnings uh, expectations in the market quite significantly, but still getting hit in stock price terms. Um, that started to change. I wouldn't say it's fully come through mm. in markets, and we actually think, therefore, there's uh, a lot to uh, to come in terms of outperformance from here in the portfolio. But um, that that's certainly come through in 2022 and 2023's numbers. Yeah, it will be interesting to see if we see more of that kind of market dispersion come through. Perhaps people would attribute that to, uh, you know, factors like kind of rising interest rates and more kind of creative destruction and and so on. I suppose what interests me about the portfolio is, of course, as you mentioned, there's a very pure focus on stock picking and you have these kind of different, I suppose, almost best ideas portfolios. And then that kind of creates a, an overall um, fund. But as you mentioned, some of the kind of big prominent market leaders um, are still pretty present in Alliance Trust. So, you know, Alphabet and Microsoft, um, both pretty big holdings. Um, I suppose it would be interesting to see uh, whether that kind of dominance of those stocks can be kind of challenged as we see that dispersion. I don't know whether you're kind of hearing any of that from your kind of favoured stock pickers and, you know, what, what they're kind of expecting. Yeah, it's quite a quite a mix. So a number of them are absolutely um, thinking that um, this is just inevitable reversal. We look at, mm. uh, over pretty much any of the periods in the past where the, the index has become quite concentrated in a small number of companies. You then look at the, the sort of following 10-year performance and actually they've tended to lag quite significantly uh, the rest of the market because you do get these regimes and they change and, and it will be different leaders that come through. Uh, over the next period. So there's certainly a number of the managers thinking that. Um, I think the interesting bit is AI in all of this and and how much of an impact that's going to have. Because if you actually look at some of those Magnificent Seven, that's very much been a feature of 2023 is that you know, almost any company that comes out and talks about uh, AI as part of their uh, approach has, has, has had a, a bit of a boon in its stock price. Um, I think you know, genuinely with a, a few of those magnificent seven companies, um, there's some pretty good arguments that uh, the fundamentals really are there. These, these are not like some of the growth stocks we've seen in the past mm. uh, that have been bid up, haven't really got any earnings, um, and it's all about um, future growth expectations from zero. Um, these are good companies that um, are actually producing strong cash flows and, uh, and earnings. So it's not quite the same as we've seen in some other um, periods. So we've got a bit of a mix uh, amongst the managers, which is why we've ended up on average over the uh, the last year or so only being slightly underweight those those seven uh, as a total um, but we've certainly got some of the managers in the lineup that have got nothing in in those companies and, and of course they're the ones that have um, done particularly well in 2022 struggled a bit more in 2023 mm. and are you tending to uh, I remember you mentioned this before with your you have your kind of balance of different styles and you normally have tried to almost kind of like top up the losers and kind of take profits on the winners is that still the process kind of going forward it is yeah that's absolutely the the principle we we start with um you know why wouldn't we be 
um, rebalancing is is why we um, is where we start with the question. Now, it may be that there's good reasons that you're not going to do that at a particular point in time, and that's mm-hmm. thinking about the mix and the impact it has on the overall portfolio. And so you, you're also looking at well, what does it do to my style exposure? What does it do to my small cap versus large cap exposure? Is it going to lead us to have unintended sector and country bets if we move around the weightings in the managers, or if we're adding a new manager as we have done recently? Uh, what impact does that have? So all of those things come into the mix. But as a general principle, yes, we would be looking to, um, on average, be taking some uh, capital away from the ones that have done particularly well, where it's been driven by their style. Mm. Um, if it's just been driven purely by their stock selection, you're you're less quick to to make that change. But even then, you know, ultimately, some of those um, could well reverse. And so that's a a general principle is adding to those that um, have had a tougher time because of their style and taking away from those that have had their style in favour for a a period of time. Mm. Has there been, um, have you found there's been almost a muddying of the water in terms of style and what your manager is doing? So for example, I think of last year, the big tech stocks were getting absolutely battered, you know, Facebook or Meta was... I think down something like 60% for the year and in the end. And you began to see some kind of well-known, you know, global value funds holding what people have always viewed or for a long time has viewed as almost quintessential growth stocks. How has that kind of played out within your kind of selected managers and your portfolio? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's very easy to talk about value and growth as being Mm. completely different things. But I mean, of course, every manager is looking for something that's good value and will grow. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, it's not as simple as black or white. And certainly that's the way we go about constructing the portfolio. We don't look for, you know, we need to fill a bucket of large cap growth. Now we need to fill a bucket of small cap value. Now, instead, we, we look at who are the best stock pickers out there in our opinion and let's pick a variety of them that think about the world very differently mm. so even even within the value space and the growth space they're very different so you you gave uh, an example there if we take a couple of our value managers you've got someone like a, a, a lyrical who will be looking for the absolute cheapest uh, companies in the world um, and uh, uh, and then deciding uh, which of those are, are, are going to uh, do well, um, and uh, that the markets uh, over uh, over um, hit the share price in terms of thinking that something's going on in the company when actually it's not as bad as the as the market thinks, and there's good reasons why that company can continue to do well, um, and then. You've equally got someone like Vulcan Value that's in the uh, portfolio that will call themselves a value manager, but their starting point is what are some of the great um, companies that are out there and then which ones look re- uh, very, very cheap. Mm. So those two managers will almost never have the same stock in their portfolio, but they're both value managers, but they're coming at it quite differently. And so Vulcan's actually done very well. Uh, in fact, it's probably the best performing manager we've got over 2023 um, because they've actually got a number of companies that people might look at and say are quite growthy in nature, um, but actually the, they, their view was that they were well below their intrinsic value, um, whereas uh, Lyrical's underperformed um, in 2023, did well in 2022, but as underperform in 2023, um, because they've got a very different starting point within that value universe. And kind of sticking on that theme, what would, as you say, the kind of the different managers you back at, they're quite disparate, take different approaches, but what do you 
defines a kind of a good stock picker. And I suppose a question that's very relevant to our, to our listeners, given active management can sometimes have quite a spotty record. You know, what, what makes you stick with a manager and what makes you finally kind of quit a manager if they've been struggling? Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, what we're trying to find in this portfolio is genuine stock pickers that have got quite a long-term time horizon and they think about risk more in terms of permanent loss of capital in the companies that they're investing in rather than risk relative to a benchmark or relative to the peer group. We can worry about what the overall portfolio looks like relative to the benchmark and, and manage risk in terms of the weightings we put to the various stock pickers and we can pick stock pickers that think differently and, and solve it that way. We don't want them to be thinking about that. We want them to have quite a long-term time horizon. And so um, that is relevant to both parts of your question. So firstly, we're looking for people that have got a track record of um, being able to take long-term views on stocks, um, hold on when things aren't um, going their way in share price terms if they're still confident in the fundamentals of the company. Um, and I've got a track record of doing that through different market cycles. And so that's essentially what we're looking for. Often it's individuals that have worked in the industry for a number of years, maybe worked at some large organisations, really uh, learnt their trade through different environments from some um, high-quality investors of the past. And then maybe over time have ended up starting their own um, shop, their own boutique uh, asset management firm, uh, and they can run assets exactly the way they want to. They can control their own destiny in terms of not having to grow the business too large, um, have their own investment um, alongside those of clients uh, and have an alignment of interest that way. Often, if you look through the portfolio, those are the kinds of um, organisations we've, we've got in here and kinds of individuals that we've, uh, we've got in here. What it also means to your second part of your question, you know, if we're looking for people that think long term, we need to think long term in terms of how we're evaluating them. And so when we're looking at the performance of a manager, what we're really trying to do is dig down into what are the component parts of that performance, what's actually driven how they've done relative to the benchmark. We don't mind if they've underperformed, if you would have expected them to underperform with their style and approach over that period. And so what we try and do is is break out how much has come from the the stock picker's ability to call the fundamentals in the companies versus how much just happens to have come from what's happened to the price earnings multiple, for example, on that company because uh, the market as a whole is suddenly liking one area of the market and all the price earnings multiples have increased and suddenly disliking some other areas of the market and they've all contracted. So we actually split out how much of that's come from that. So if we find a manager that's actually been calling uh, the fundamentals correctly. They've been investing in some companies that have been surprising on the upside with their earnings, but that just hasn't come through in the share price yet, and hence they've lagged the market. We'd be adding money to, to those managers because their style's been out of favour. Whereas clearly, you could have a manager that's outperformed, but actually, in our opinion, they've actually been calling the fundamentals wrongly in some of the managers. They've got lucky because uh, there's just been multiple expansion. Anyone in their area of the market would have done well. We might actually be concerned about that manager. And so it's not always just whether they've outperformed or underperformed. It's what's driven that outperformance or underperformance. And 
The other thing is, has anything changed in the proposition of what we bought the manager for in the first place? And so the most likely things that make us want to take a manager out will be something like the key individuals left or mm. um, they've started to, to grow the assets too large that they can't actually add the kind of value that they used to in the past or there's been a change in ownership and we're concerned about the culture of the organisation going forward. Those kind of things are more likely to make us change a manager rather than just um, short or medium term performance. And are there any red flags that would point to, um, I suppose, the, the risk of so-called style drift? So this is something we think about a lot. If you have a, I suppose, in recent years, it's tended to be a topic of most relevance to value managers when value was very out, very out of favour. There was a worry that a value manager would kind of drift into, you know, growth investing in order to try and shore up their bad performance. And then finally, when value does come good, they're not really in the right position to take advantage. Yeah, it's a great question. This is what we spend a lot of our time on. It's a really important part of it, particularly with a multi-manager approach like this, because what we don't want is them all to start moving towards whatever yeah. the style is that's been doing well recently, because then the whole idea of having a style-neutral portfolio goes out the window. Um, and so we spend a lot of time on this. It's actually quite difficult because of your question earlier around, well, everyone's a bit value and bit growth, and there'll be times where you end up in stocks that maybe look a little bit growth when you're a value manager and, and, and vice versa. So it is a tough thing to do. And ultimately, that comes down to a lot of qualitative research that we do into these managers. So we'll be spending time with them on a very regular basis, going through the stocks in the portfolio, trying to understand why they invest in them. Uh, and just as importantly, why they haven't, for example, taken profits on stocks that have done well. Um, but your example's a good one in that um, a lot of value managers just had a number of years of underperformance and capitulated uh, to a certain extent and, and and just couldn't continue to run that business risk. Uh, and so that's exactly the sort of thing we're trying to uh, keep an eye on and see whether uh, there is a drift in that. Uh, it comes through quite easily in ours because we start to see if the overall portfolio starts to have a style bias because normally it's pretty style neutral and if we're continually having to change weightings because more and more managers are drifting towards the same style it becomes fairly obvious to us in the alliance trust portfolio yeah and looking i suppose at the portfolio itself um you know we've mentioned some of those kind of big u.s names that are prominent in the portfolio which may seem it kind of may make it look in line with um, the broader market, but what are the kind of interesting calls currently within the, the portfolio that perhaps make it stand out from, if I was simply to buy an MSCI World Tracker or so on? Yeah, so one of the measures that people often use about how different uh, an active portfolio is to the benchmark is a, a, a term called active money, where it actually looks at... Um, from a score of zero to a hundred, a hundred uh, zero means you're exactly in line with the index. So you've got no active money. A uh, hundred means you've got nothing. You don't own any of the stocks that are actually in the index. So, so you you, you look nothing like it. Um, most um, portfolios might be a in the 50, 60% type thing. You might have some punchy single manager portfolios that are up in the 70, 80% uh, type numbers. Most multi-manager portfolios much lower. Because we run these concentrated portfolios, our active money is actually quite high, um, close to 80%, even with a multi-manager approach. So actually, it's very different from the benchmark. Um, but of course, as you say, if you look at the list of uh, top 10 positions, um, 
it's got some of the larger stocks in there. If we take the the most active positions, the biggest active position is that we've got almost nothing in Apple, and Apple makes up um, more than um, four or five percent of the of the benchmark. Um, and and yes, we've got Alphabet as an overweight, but other um, big overweights we've got are Visa, Mastercard, United Health Group, Petrobras. Uh, Amazon we've mentioned, but Airbus, HDFC Bank in India, um, and uh, a few others like Mercado Libre. Um, so there are some different names just in the top 10. But I think the interesting thing about the way Alliance Trust is designed is that it is not all about the top 10 stocks. They, they make up a smaller proportion of our portfolio than maybe many others. It's actually quite a diversified portfolio be, because you're asking these stock pickers to pick their very best 20 ideas anywhere. They're not typically just going to be the largest um, 20 stocks. Uh, and um, there's actually quite limited overlap between what the managers are owning. Um, you know, Clearly, in things like Alphabet and Amazon, we have got a number of the managers owning them, and that's why they end up uh, being in the largest overweights. But for the vast majority of stocks in the portfolio, only one portfolio manager owns them. And so there's some quite interesting names in there that wouldn't be found in a lot of uh, active portfolios that are out there, and hence why we've been able to significantly outperform the peer group over uh, most of the periods uh, over the last few years. And as you mentioned, I suppose the underweight to Apple is quite an interesting, you know, you're taking a view by not taking a position. Uh, what do you hear from your stock pickers on, you know, that kind of thesis? Why are they not kind of being drawn to that like many other investors are? Yeah, it's an interesting one because, you know, unlike... If you ask a, a, a typical single manager to run against a benchmark uh, and think about risk relative to that benchmark, they have to spend a lot of time thinking about their underweight position to something as large as uh, as Apple. Because we ask each of the managers to think more in terms of permanent loss of capital rather than that risk relative to benchmark and just pick their 20 best ideas, they're not actually sitting there saying they're particularly negative on Apple. In fact, most of them would say it's a good company and they're reasonably positive about it, but it just wouldn't be in their top 20 ideas. And most of that's just purely down to the fact that it's had such a strong run performance-wise that they don't see that as the most obvious winner over the next five-plus years, um, given that it's been such a winner over the last, um, well, decade-plus. Mm. Um, uh, and so it's more that... Uh, on on Apple in particular, they're they're not having a a negative view per se, but of course it does come out that way. Um, that's about the only stock that's large enough that that's the case in the portfolio. As I said, Tesla's the next biggest underweight, um, and whereas it's a four percent underweight in Apple, it's only a one percent underweight in Tesla because Tesla's only well one point two percent of the index. Yeah, and I suppose speaking again about kind of market concentration and and that kind of thing. Uh, it's interesting that the trust is, you know, technically kind of underweight to North America, but you still have a big weighting in America, like many global portfolios. Do you get any sense from your stock pickers that that kind of US dominance will end? You know, people always argue that the US is just so hard to beat in terms of building world leading companies and so on. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at the um, the ones that are running a truly global portfolio, um, on average, they're quite significantly underweight, the US, um, and have been for virtually the, the whole period we've been running the trust. So that's um, uh, around um, uh, six and a half, uh, getting on for seven years now. And what we actually did is we didn't want that to be the dominant 
risk factor in the portfolio. And so we've got a couple of managers in there that focus more on the US than they do globally. And, and um, so uh, that includes Vulcan and that includes Lyrical, um, uh, who are in the portfolio uh, and primarily invest in US. They can invest elsewhere, but they primarily invest in the US. That's their real skill set. And part of the reason for having them in there was to ensure that we didn't run too big a position. Um, now, thankfully, that that has been beneficial because the US has continued to do incredibly well, despite people thinking that um, uh, that, that that market was looking um less attractive than some of the others on valuation grounds. Now, a lot of that's driven by the fact that it's been a small number of tech companies that have driven the rally. If you actually take those out of it, US has done less well on a relative basis than, um, than it looks when you, when you include those. Um, so that's been a good risk control for us. But as you say, we're still underweight uh, the US. And so if you do see uh, a... a uh, a change in the leadership from a geographical perspective, we would actually benefit from that. Um, but it is risk managed so that stock selection is still the, the primary driver through everything. And looking beyond the uh, the US, what kind of regions might you know stand out now or in the future? Yes, yeah, an interesting one because we don't typically take um, big macro views, as I've said. However, one area that we think looks particularly interesting, in particular from an alpha generation, so a, a stock selection uh, perspective, is Japan. Um, clearly, it's a market that's uh, underperformed for quite a long time, um, has had a bit of a resurgence uh, in recent times, but still nothing compared to um, the long period of, of relative underperformance. It still looks um, cheap on most grounds that you could look at, both relative to its own history and relative to, to other markets. Uh, but that in itself's not an interesting point. That's been true for a while. The, the, the particularly interesting thing is what's changing in terms of the dynamics within that market. And so... Uh, Previous Prime Minister Abe made a number of structural reforms uh, to make it a bit more shareholder friendly. And then in January this year, uh, a new um, rule came in that um, companies that are um, at a, a price to book value below one have to set out what their plans are to get it uh, above one. And so you're starting to see quite a change in the mindset within that um, universe around companies thinking about what they do with some of these stockpiles of cash that they've got, and that might lead to share buybacks, that might lead to further investment in the business, uh, and actually you're seeing quite a lot of shareholder activism coming to the to the fore in that market to try and encourage some of these uh, companies to do these things. And so what we've actually done uh, in July was put in a new manager, which is Dalton. Um, and that's a manager we've been following for a long time. Uh, they were set up in 1999 and um, very much have, have got skills in Asia and Japan in particular. And um, their 20-stop portfolio that they're now running for us is going to be focused on Japan, uh, a bit more in the mid and small cap space, but really trying to take advantage of exactly what I've just talked about and looking for companies where they think the management is aligned to shareholder interests and is going to start working on some of these things, picking what they think are particularly undervalued companies uh, that can benefit from the use of uh, cash on the balance sheet or whatever it might be to, to, to 
be a bit more shareholder friendly and drive returns. When you then add that to the fact that the market as a whole looks pretty cheap and they're in a different environment in terms of inflation and interest rates than the rest of the world, uh, it actually looks a pretty attractive proposition from our perspective. Interesting. And and turning to, um, I suppose, some of the kind of other elements of the, the trust world, there's been, I suppose, a few interesting developments from Alliance Trust in the last year or two. Um, one is, I suppose, like many other trusts, there's been a bit of ramping up in terms of kind of buyback activity. Um, the trust has kind of, um, I suppose, attributed the stability, relative stability of the share price discount to that in part. Um, is there kind of a a rough ruling on that front? I mean, it, it it's an interesting balancing act. You know, what is more value? Is it kind of buying back your shares or is it better for the trust to be, you know, pouring that money into the underlying investments? Yes. So um, you're right. I mean, the, the whole global equity investment trust sector has seen um, discounts widen uh, in recent times. And I think the average for the global equity investment trust sector is about minus 14% now, um, so 14% discount to NAV. The board on Alliance Trust have um, followed a discount um, management policy such that they want to try and keep it stable. They think that's in the interests of investors to have a relatively stable um, discount or premium to to NAV. Um, They've been able to do that from two Parts. The first is, you know, just the fact that there's quite a lot of interest in the trust at the uh, at the moment, and so we're seeing less of that blowout of the discount than a lot of the others because we've been outperforming the uh, the peer group by uh, quite some way in recent times. Um, so that that's that's a good part of it, and then part of it has been um, continuing to do buybacks as appropriate in order to ensure that it does stay at a, at a sensible discount, and it's pretty much stayed around 6% for quite a few years now um, on, on the discount side of things, whereas, as I say, the sector has gone out to about 14% discount, so that's quite a big difference to to others. Um, the board see that as a as a positive for shareholders. I mean, ultimately, that's uh, accretion in the in the nav. You're, you're buying a, uh, at a discount, and that actually improves performance, uh, and it also um, gives stability um, to investors as well, which is helpful in managing their own portfolios. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but again, an interesting, uh, I suppose, opportunity cost. I was, I was quite enjoying uh, some comments from the chairman of. Uh, the Invesco Asia Trust recently talking about why they hadn't done buybacks. And he was talking about there were some great long-term investment opportunities on the horizon. And he said something like, we do not want to stand in the way of that. Another, I suppose, interesting development has been on the kind of dividend front. You know, you have seen some big dividend increases from the trust in its recent history, um, in part, I think, using kind of revenue reserves that are built up over time. Should we kind of be expecting to see more of that Um trajectory and uh, you know what effect does that kind of have when it um, comes to the actual investment portfolio you know do you need to do your stock pickers need to focus more on natural income does yield begin to play more of a part in the um, portfolio yeah it's always a balance isn't it I mean our our um, the the ultimate objective for the trust is to be a core investment that delivers a real return over the long term through a combination of capital growth and a rising dividend so it is looking for a rising dividend 
um, and uh, the trust is uh, a dividend hero. It's now um, increased its dividend 56 years in a row. Uh, and of all the AIC dividend heroes uh, out there, it's actually had the highest five-year growth in dividends. Um, so it's now sitting at a, a pretty attractive dividend yield um, relative to a number of others in the global equity sector. But it's not a, a, an income fund per se. Um, this is just trying to give a balance of good returns from um, from capital growth, but also a, a rising dividend. And that's something that will continue. Um, there was a, a big reset um, last year with a very significant increase in the dividend to make sure the yield was at a, uh, a position that um, the board thought was appropriate. And the board talked to a number of the uh, investors in the trust to check what, what would work for them uh, and so uh, have come to that balance of where, where they think's the the right spot. So, yes, I would expect to continue to see rising dividends after 56 years. It's unlikely that we're going to want to be um, <laughs> stopping that now. The big advantage of Alliance Trust relative to most is just the huge um, set of um, revenue reserves and wider um, reserves that the trust has got. And so it is able to, to do that for a number of years, almost regardless of what's happening in the market markets at the particular point in time. As it happened, uh, the dividend was covered in um, 2022 by um, the yield on the portfolio. Um, but you know, if there are years where that's not the case, they can continue to smooth that out through the use of the reserves as appropriate. Mm. Is, is that yield something you guys think about much? I, mean, I think I've recently looked and it's, I think it was around 2.3%, which as you say, is not bad for global funds, though um, of course, you can find bigger yields elsewhere. Yep. Um, UK equities, alternatives, even bonds now, which is a quite a uh, quite a change. But um, yeah, is is that kind of what kind of focus is that? So, in terms of how we manage the portfolio, it doesn't really affect us too much. Um, we've been able to cover the dividend um, uh, in most of the recent years uh, with the natural yield on the portfolio. Um, so, we certainly don't set any of the stock pickers limits on what they have to do. They don't have a minimum yield they have to achieve or anything like that. Of course, you know, by its nature of us picking managers that think about the world differently, some of them actually, as part of their natural process, have dividend yield as an important part of what they're looking for in the in the stocks that they're investing in. Others don't. Um, and that, that's quite a, a, a big mix between the managers. But as a result, you tend to end up with a yield, a natural yield on the portfolio that doesn't look wildly different from that of the index. Um, now, if we ever needed to, we could add more income-oriented type managers to the portfolio. That's one of the advantages uh, of the multi-manager approach. You don't have to suddenly ask uh, managers that don't think that way to to have that as part of their process suddenly. Um, you could just add other managers that do. But that's not something we need to worry about in the short to medium term. Um, the natural yield on the portfolio is absolutely fine, particularly when uh, you allow for the, the reserves that are in place as well. And speaking of kind of the, the approach, and I suppose the approach can evolve over time. Um, if you look at some of kind of Alliance Trust's big rivals, I suppose one interesting um, difference that springs out to me is the fact that some of them do delve slightly beyond just the equity space. They may kind of, you know, look at private equity trusts and that kind of thing. Is that ever something that would be a, a consideration for you guys? Or is it always the aim to be kind of the base equity exposure and then leave those elements elsewhere? So um, when we took over the trust um, uh, 
back in 2017, uh, one of the things that the uh, board had done at that time was to uh, do a full strategic review of what they wanted the trust to, to be. And at the time, that it, it had a number of things outside traditional public equities. That included private equity, that included um, some mineral rights, that included some uh, real estate and uh, a few other things, um, and also included Alliance Trust Savings uh, as part of the, uh, the overall portfolio. At that time, they, they took the view that they wanted to move back to the roots of being a pure public equity uh, investment trust and that's how we've been managing it uh, since that you know it took a, a couple of years to wind down some of those positions but uh, certainly over the last three years or so uh, it's been a fully invested equity public equity portfolio now could the board decide to evolve that through time of course but as it stands today um, the remit is to keep that as a public equity portfolio of course that's been beneficial in recent times and a number of trusts out there are struggling with some of their uh, private markets um, positions in the portfolio and of course that uh, it's all about how you manage um, those private markets positions there's uh, there's nothing inherently wrong in doing that it has um, potential advantages but you know it can have uh, implications on your portfolio and what that can do to uh, gearing in the portfolio if there uh, if the market's falling uh, and you've got mm. private market positions and they can grow in in size in the portfolio. Thankfully, we've not had any of those issues at all over the last uh, few years. And you mentioned gearing. Um, how is the gearing looking in the portfolio at the minute? Yeah, so we uh, tend to run. Well, we have a, a strategic position on gearing, gross gearing in the portfolio of ten percent. Um, and we typically don't take big positions from that. Again, wanting stock selections to drive things rather than WTW's view on whether equities are going to go up or down. Um, and so we would typically be in the 75 to 12.5% range, um, but can go below 7.5%, particularly if it's markets driving it below that, and can go above 12.5% similarly. Um, but, but most of the time you'd be in that kind of range. Mm. We're at the bottom end. Uh, of that as of today. Um, and whilst we're very excited about the portfolio from a bottom-up perspective, you know, we've done a lot of work on what the fundamentals of the companies look like and we're very excited that hasn't fully come through in share prices yet and so uh, there's some real potential upside in relative outperformance. We, we're very excited about it from a bottom-up perspective as are the underlying stock pickers. Um, we recognise that there are some risks at a top-down level um, You've seen uh, rising interest rates, inflation um, being a bit more sticky than um, uh, than some might like, um, and uh, certainly bond markets tend to be pricing in more of a recessionary type environment than equity markets are. And so, with that level of caution, uh, we're at the lower end of um, the uh, typical gearing range. Um, but there is still some gearing in the portfolio. As I said, 7-7.5% on a gross basis. Um, that's more like 4.5-5% uh, on a net basis. And speaking of kind of sentiment, you must, I suppose, always be interested to gauge how your managers are feeling and who's upbeat or who's particularly gloomy. You know, at the minute, you know, where's the kind of bearishness coming from and um, which kind of managers are you hearing more excitable noises from? Well, what's actually interesting at the moment is that, as you say, you normally get, um, you know, 
some of the managers being particularly excited about their portfolio and, and some a bit less so. I still think over the long term they're excited about it, but in the short to medium term, a bit more concerned about it. Actually, we're sitting here today and most of the managers, if not all of them, are really excited about their portfolio. And I think that lends to this idea that true fundamentals haven't necessarily come through in share prices yet. And that's true whether you're in the growth space, whether you're in the value space, large cap or small cap. And so each of them can point to uh, a number of companies they've got in their portfolio that have really started to beat expectations from a fundamentals perspective, i.e. their earnings progression has been really very strong, but that hasn't yet come through in share price. In fact, they can often give examples of where the share price has fallen on good news on earnings. And so they're sitting there really quite excited that there's genuine latent value in the portfolio. The difference, of course, is that um, some of the managers think that overall markets are uh, are going to do well from here and others are a bit more bearish on what overall markets are going to do. But the the common trait at the moment is that they're all very excited about the individual 20 stocks that they've got in their portfolio. And I know, you know, it's easy to look at it and go, well, yeah, but everyone always says that of their own portfolio. But actually, you do tend to get normally periods where it's more the value managers that are excited about their portfolio or more the growth managers. At the moment, genuinely, there's there's interest from both of them. So those managers who are exposed to um, some of the stocks that have been really flying this year, we've mentioned tech and so on, have, have they been resisting the temptation to sort of take those profits? Uh, they ha- I mean, there, there aren't really any managers that have, you know, loaded up on all of the Magnificent Seven, if you see what I mean. So, you know, even within that, there's there's been some, you know, taking some profits on a couple of the stocks and adding a bit more to a couple of the others even within that. Um, but yes, some of those are, um, those that have got positions in that area are still very confident. You know, we've got a, a reasonably significant overweight, for example, in Alphabet. A number of the managers would talk about the fact that that hasn't really um, fully uh, reflected how strong that business is uh, today um, in its share price. I mean, if you remember, Alphabet actually came off quite a bit um, uh, back in um back at last year um, and has had a good run this year but but still um, a number of them would look at it and say um, that's not fully reflecting quite how well that business is doing hmm. and and finally just turning back to the um, investment trust space you know we've seen what's been interesting is we have begun to see some difficulties and that has led to boards taking action and a decent amount of kind of consolidation and so on what does that mean for Alliance Trust? I mean, would Alliance Trust potentially be one to kind of take on some of these trusts and expand even further? Would that be a good thing for the future? Yeah, a good question. I mean, it's really one for the board rather than uh, rather than us in terms of uh, what that might mean. I mean, the main thing from our perspective is what it's meant is that the, the, the peer group's been... Um, looked as though it's done better than it really has because uh, some of the poorer performing trusts have dropped out of the peer group. Survivorship bias. Correct. So there's more survivorship bias. So we've significantly outperformed the peer group, but if you actually recalculate the peer group to include all the ones that were in there at any particular point in time, we've outperformed by quite a lot more than that, um, which is is interesting. So that's probably the most, the biggest impact it's had on on us from, uh, from WTW perspective in terms of how we're managing the trust. As to whether 
Um, you know, the fact that Alliance Trust has been one of the best performing of all the trusts and has got less of a discount to NAV than any uh, the other trusts. As to whether that means um, there are acquisition possibilities, I'll, I'll have to leave that one to the board. <laughs> we, we shall wait and see. Well, I'm afraid that is all we have uh, time for, but uh, very interesting discussion. So, Craig, thanks for your time. And thank you to everyone for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.